I am Citizen 44.
my goodness, I am so happy right now. First Friday was fantastic. So many people came in and gave me hugs. We had wine and we had cheese and it was so warm outside. Everybody was walking around having a fantastic time. And uh, that's all I have to say about that. I mean, it was really ridiculous. I can't believe that I had never had a first Friday in Paris Green before. But never again will we not have a first Friday. So look for us again next first Friday in June. Oh gosh, please come in. You won't believe how fun it is. 77 Oak Street, downtown Ashland. Also look for us on Facebook. Mention you heard this ad and you will receive 10% off your next purchase. Okay, bye-bye. Hey everybody, Mark Ahrensberg here. Welcome to Citizen 44. This is show number 41. My guest today is Stephen Biller. Stephen is an art advocate, a publisher, writer, editor, uh, who's living in the Palm Springs area. Stephen uh, came to me through a friend, Alan Hicks. I think he was show number seven. And uh, Stephen is all about making sure that we have art to see, that local artists in his area are getting exposure and uh, that young artists, up-and-comers, are offered an opportunity to present their work. So we had a great conversation. He's a super nice man, and I actually hope to get to the desert to visit him at some point. Uh, Interesting things are happening in my life, but I'll tell you something funny that I didn't really know. I mentioned last week that I uh, took a little trip with a capital T uh, at my friend David's 50th birthday party two weeks from a couple of days ago. And uh, I had not done any kind of major hallucinogenic substances, maybe since Burning Man 2006, but I went ahead and allowed myself to be dosed up by some uh, lysergic acid and some magic mushrooms. And I walked home at about one o'clock in the morning from Ashland Mine Road, a residence of whom I did not know. And uh, I don't recall anything other than maybe laughing a lot while I was walking home and then nothing more than that and then the other day I was uh, standing out on the sidewalk in front of my apartment building and my neighbor uh, came by and I don't really know how the subject was broached but I was told that I was lying on the uh, hallway floor in my apartment building laughing my ass off and uh, one of my neighbors Chris thank you Chris Uh, came out and helped me into my apartment. And then I was told that for at least an hour straight after that, uh, they could hear me laughing until I think I probably passed out. So I thought that was pretty funny and interesting that my entire trippy experience was, uh, clearly I was tickled. Uh, Having a good time, something was very funny. And you know what, life is incredibly funny on many levels, but I think I was shown something on the lighter side. I have no idea, really, honestly. I have no idea what my trip was, but uh, clearly I had a good time. Uh, Since then, I did a little bit of a, I guess, a cleanse. I had eliminated alcohol, marijuana, sugar, and caffeine from my diet. 
and I was already uh, previously a vegan, so there was no meat or dairy. And I started dropping weight, feeling better, uh, all the symptoms, all the side effects, all the results of taking certain elements out of your body. And this past weekend, I decided to put some of them back in and see how I respond. Now, sugar is not one of them. Although I did have some wine, and of course, wine has sugar in it through a natural processing, uh, I still uh, am staying off the sugar. As far as the marijuana thing goes, what I have found is I don't necessarily want it anymore. And uh, I did a bunch in a few different ways. But uh, I guess it's just not my thing, or maybe this is just a time where I'm not all that interested in it. And so that's super cool. And uh, same thing with the caffeine. I, I tried a little half caffeinated, half decaffeinated coffee, and uh, it's okay. But, uh, you know, I don't really feel like I need it or, or want it all that much. I did have a little bit today because I got up super early to uh, talk to my friend Tom Bean. He's a restaurateur here in town, owns three restaurants, uh, does pretty well. Didn't really know much about him. But what a great guy, well-connected in the town, and uh, hopefully he and I are going to work together on some projects, uh, mainly dealing with uh, the potential rehabilitation of some of the displaced people on the streets here in uh, our town. So that's that on the whole cleansing thing. I'm kind of done, but uh, I'm, I want to keep the weight off. I want to continue to lose weight. I want to continue to eliminate uh, the sugar from my diet. I'm also eliminating almost all carbs except for brown rice. So I feel good. I feel pretty good. Uh, the kids are good. Saw them a couple times this week. Uh, Sam and I had dinner with Rich Reese the other night over at Sauce. Uh, last time I was there, maybe two years ago, did not have the most pleasant dining experience. But this time was quite nice. The whole place is remodeled and uh, they had this kind of build your own bowl thing, which was delicious. And that was great. And then uh, Sam and I uh, took off and uh, saw this new movie called A Quiet Place, a little bit of a horror film by John Krasinski from The Office. So that was fun. I couldn't heckle, really, because the movie was called A Quiet Place. The movie was almost entirely quiet. There was only a little bit of uh, music in it. But uh, Sam and I did notice it had a little bit of a flavor of Jaws and Jurassic Park. It seemed like John had taken all the best kind of cool horror-type films and put it all into his film. So that was a very enjoyable experience. And yesterday, uh, Zoe and I went back to Sauce, and we took some food to go to Clay Street Park and uh, sat in the park, had the whole park to ourselves at a nice picnic table, and had a beautiful meal. And uh, I got to hear about her taking her SATs and what's going on at the house and how she's feeling about life and all that kind of stuff. And then we went to buy Mart and she got a few school supplies and things and just a nice little outing. So that's pretty much mostly of what is going on in my life. It's good. It's all good. I'm happy. Uh, my fairy godmother, Gabby from Paris Green, uh, said to go find my ticket to Thailand and that she would front the money and pay for it for me, which, of course, is super generous. And she's such a great lady, and I love uh, that she's got my back. And speaking of got my back, I did sell my Dr. Seuss booby trap to a lovely dear, another caring, sweet friend, 
another, you know, angel on my shoulder, Tracy Dooley. Uh, so that uh, got my rent paid up and uh, took care of some other expenses. And uh, I've got $100 put away sitting next to my passport, ready for a trip to Thailand right after Zoe's 18th birthday on November 7th. So somewhere between November 7th and let's say November 10th, I am out of here, back to Thailand. And uh, I'll meet up with Eric Benetti, a friend here who will take his first time trip to Thailand and hopefully also meet up with Rich Reese, uh, who would be taking a plane over from Ireland. And speaking of Ireland, the other day, I had a chat on the phone with Keith Roberts, frontman, guitar player, funny cat from Ireland, uh, L.A. band called The Young Dubliners. Great band, super fun. So look for that show uh, several weeks from now. And uh, I think we've got show number 44 all sewed up. The lead for that show is going to be OSF actor uh, Kevin Kennerly. He and I had a very deep discussion about what it's like to be an African-American man in today's world And I got a hardcore history lesson, a lot of information that, frankly, I really knew nothing about. And uh, and these are things that are not taught in school. So it was uh, very deep and moving. And uh, he'll be headlining show 44 and uh, co-headlining show 44, my friend Gary Kaut, who will talk about uh, his career and the uh, original documentary series from Netflix that he produced appropriately with Kevin Kennerly called Flint Town, about a town, a predominantly African-American, that seems to have been forgotten by the rest of America, so much so, almost as if being punished, has had no clean water, drinking water, for a few years now. And I understand they're going to be cutting off the bottled water. So this is another catastrophic example of us not taking care of uh, not only ourselves, uh, but each other. So that'll be coming up, show 44. It's only three away from right now. I want to thank you for listening. It's uh, my pleasure to be here. The show's a little rough, I have to tell you. We were having a bit of technical difficulties doing the phone thing with Stephen Biller, even though he was only in uh, Southern California area. Um, I did the best I could with the audio. I think only a few things got a little scratchy that uh, maybe didn't come through as well as they should. Uh, But overall... I think you'll have no trouble feeling Stephen, knowing more about him, and uh, getting a taste of the desert. All right, here we go. Hey, Stephen, Mark here. How are you? Hey, good. Thanks for having me. Oh, man, thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate it. My friend Alan Hicks was hanging out in Palm Springs. That's right. He happened to send me an email and said he had lunch with you, which... I had no knowledge of you prior to him letting me know that you guys had lunch together. And it was not uh, an introduction for the purposes of what we're doing now. He just wanted to uh, tell me about his day. And you were part of his day. And uh, I found you to be an interesting person based on the art world that you've been living in uh, most of your professional days. Right, right. Yeah, well... It's uh, the closest thing I've got to religion is art and soccer. Those are my two passions in life. Art and soccer? Are you still playing soccer? I stopped playing, but I uh, I try to watch a few games a week. When did you stop playing, and why did you stop playing? It's just not as quick as I used to be, and uh, you know my my touch on the ball is uh, not improved over the years. It's going the other way. 
they call it the beautiful game for a reason. Uh, you know, done right is truly an art in itself. And uh, I'm enjoying kind of sitting back and, and watching others uh, do it beautifully. Okay, cool. I'm sure there's a league or there's guys of your age group still managing to get out there and a little slower maybe oh, yeah. getting it done, but they're still getting it done. You know, we old guys, we're smarter on the ball. We let the young guys do the running and we just, uh, we have better vision of field and uh, better anticipation of what's going to happen. And we have a good time just watching them run around trying to figure out what we're going to do. Well, isn't that the beauty of being the goalie? Isn't that like the prime position to have? For the goalie, well, they certainly have the best view and the best perspective. That's why they're screaming all the time, yelling at everybody, telling them what to do. You know, they have the um, the luxury of perspective. <laughs> do you have children that you've been able to live vicariously through in that way? No, I, I, uh, I don't. But uh, I took in a teenager for a while, and that was a lot of fun. It was also uh, really nice to uh, not have a teenager in your house. <laughs> Are you so, in uh, the Palm Springs area residing now? Yeah, I live in the southern part of Palm Springs in the Indian Canyon, and uh, it's beautiful here. Uh, it's mostly Indian land here, and so there are rules about uh, how high lights can be on the streets or if there can be street lights at all. And so it's a uh, it's a really peaceful place, and it's a beautiful place right in the Look of the San Jacinto mountain range and the Santa Rosa mountain range. Uh, you know, this, the canyon is right where the two connect. So we're just surrounded in every direction. It's a beautiful place. Uh, I would imagine so. Also, I don't know how you guys do the whole heat thing. Honestly, and I, I'm a Jew. I mean, we go to Florida when it gets cold, but I don't get the whole extreme heat thing. Well, I'm a Jew from Florida. So you okay, know. I might say, um, I know, uh, yeah. I, I actually like the heat out here a little bit better. It's, uh, it's a dry heat, so you're not breathing in this wet air, and uh, you're not sweating all the time, because whatever sweat you're producing is drying immediately, which is why people dehydrate, have heat stroke, and die, but, you know, that's a different story. So you kind of have, it's, you know, it's the desert, it's an, ex- an extreme place, and you have to uh, know how to live out here, and it takes a lot of water, and people say, oh, wherever they live, you got to drink some water, you got to drink a lot of water. Right. But here, if you don't drink a lot of water, you will die. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's really mandatory, truly. There's a lot of elderly in that area, and I would imagine that it's just a regular occurrence that they're being picked up from the various uh, retirement villages in the area. Yeah, well, that is a common occurrence, unfortunately, but, uh, you know, that's how uh, how life goes. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's a beautiful place, and I moved here in 2002 when I was only 32 years old. And uh, I came here to become the editor of Palm Springs Life magazine, which I did for 12 years. And um, after I left, I had to face whether I wanted to uh, make a move for my profession or stay here for the place. And so for the first time ever in my life, I chose place over profession. And, uh, and I haven't looked back. It's just a beautiful thing. Well, you're choosing your quality of life, That's right. so, which is yeah. really important at any given time. But it's cool that you put in your time a couple of decades worth, and and then we're able to choose how you do the rest of your time. For now, I'm still waiting for the other shoe to drop. You know, I, I, I live in the real world, but uh, no, I mean, I have some really great projects now. I'm involved in the launch of a nonprofit arts council out here that 
uh, been desperately needed, and uh, also on the board of directors of uh, Desert X, which is a, a biennial exhibition of uh, site-specific art for the lower desert. When I say lower desert, that's I'm distinguishing between uh, the Palm Springs, uh, Greater Coachella Valley area, and the high desert, which is uh, Joshua Tree and, and 29 Palms, and and, uh, and then some of the those communities up in the in the Joshua Tree Gateway communities, we call them. So, uh, you know, the, the deserts are quite different, actually, even though they're only about 40 minutes apart. They're pretty dramatic differences. But what's great is that uh, the art out here is often site-specific, meaning that artists are here by choice and they're studying and immersing themselves into the landscape and the history and the sociology and the ecology, uh, seismic activity, and all sorts of different ways of sizing this place. And they're responding to it with really smart art installations that are kind of interpretive of the land and the place and, and really force people to come out of their homes or if you're visiting as tourists, they uh, get to go to places that they would never go before for any other purpose. And they're, they're looking at the desert from a completely different perspective and then analyzing it and kind of experiencing it through this prism of, uh, of these site-specific artworks, which is... Uh, it's a really exciting thing. It's, a, it's like a scavenger hunt, and, and uh, you never know what you're going to find. There's lots of surprises, and uh, it's been a really fun thing to be a part of. How did you, one, get your start in the art world? Because that could go in all kinds of directions, of course, and you've, you've honed in on something. The fact that you've been in a, a variety of capacities within the art world but specifically, mostly in the uh, editing, correct? Yeah, I spent uh, 30 years in publishing, and I still do it. I'm working on a, a book right now. I just published a, a book with an artist in a museum in Santa Clara, the Trite Museum of Art, big exhibition there. And they had me edit their exhibition and book for that. And um, working with Desert X to produce a catalog for that experience, working with the Date Farmers, which is a collaborative of uh, two uh, Chicano artists here in the desert who are making really important work. And uh, they've been at it for about 20 years now, and it needs to be kind of canonized in, in our historical terms and, and celebrated as, as important and significant and good. It's good art. So, uh, uh, yeah, you know, I came out of publishing. I've been in publishing for a long time, and mostly magazines that started in newspapers. And when I moved out to Palm Springs, you know, after a while, I started deciding that this is where I'm going to live. And so I started making a home of it. It wasn't just this place that I'm, I'm living in for a couple of years. I started really thinking about my home in this place as, as a long-term situation. So I started indulging in things that I normally wouldn't have because I always considered myself a transient because of my profession, you know, I would go where the work was. And so, uh, you know, I was writing a lot about art just because there's so much of it here. It's hard not to when you live in a place with so much of it. And I got addicted. I, I'd always had the interest, but uh, when I started writing about it on a regular basis, uh, I just started feeling more connected to the place. And it's something I hadn't experienced any other place I lived. So um, it's kind of grew out of that. That's really kind of what inspired me to leave my job at the magazine after 12 years 
and um, work on the nonprofit arts council and do basically economic development work in the arts. It's a slow burn. Economic development is it's not necessarily exciting. It's not pretty. It's not sexy. It's not necessarily social. <laughs> so, um, you know, it presents a, a set of challenges because when you set out for these long-term outcomes, to grow the creative economy and, and make cultural tourism a bigger part of the mix. And making these things happen, you know, just taking all the steps that you have to go through to, to have big outcomes, it's nothing like publishing. You know, you've got a magazine deadline every month and, and, and you've got a product every month and economic development doesn't go so quickly. You know, I don't get that instant gratification I had in publishing. It takes a long time for people to understand what you're doing, to buy into it, to understand your program and, uh, and feel like they could be beneficial to them. It takes a long time to get the right type of institutional uh, endorsement. But, you know, I keep focusing on the long-term outcomes, and that's what kind of keeps me going. Well, what is your overarching goal? What I'm trying to do is a little different than growing the collector economy. It's more about creating opportunities for the really good artists here to be seen. And it's the same with the performing artists, too, is how do we identify the best talent here and give them a platform so people can see it and celebrate it? And, you know, those are the things that become part of cultural tourism. That's what people want to come to see. That's what's authentic about the place. Any city can bring in some slick artists from New York and do something special. And it's great when they do. And we do that here, too. But what's even more special is when you can raise your own artists and they're doing something truly unique that's drawn from this place, uh, inspired by this place. And there are different cultures. We have a big Native American community out here, a very, very large Mexican-American community out here. And, and the Latino community here is, is almost half of the population. But if you go to the museum, you don't necessarily you know, see that kind of representation. When you go to the theater, you don't see that kind of re- representation. So what we're interested in is creating a platform to create authentic experiences so that our artists have a platform and uh, we can deliver something authentic to our visitors. And there are people who live here, our residents. So essentially what you're saying is you're bringing awareness to the local artists and trying to expose them to not only local galleries, art collectors, appreciators, but also far and wide outside the, the realm of the desert. Absolutely. I mean, we want to help all artists. We, you know, we have programs and professional development and advocacy, grant writing, all kinds of things to help artists be better business people to elevate their practice. We also want to help the premier, the top tier artists find bigger audiences outside of here. We have to help our best people be seen by the right people. Are you able to expose uh, the talent there to big galleries in New York, San Francisco, and, and get them showings, get them seen? Well, that's one of the things cooking right now with the date farmers, that collective I mentioned. These guys, uh, two artists, and they've been, I think I mentioned, they've been at this for about 20 years. And one of the things they did in the community of Coachella, uh, which is a tiny little town, half hour, 40 minutes east of Palm Springs, Coachella itself is a community mostly comprised of Mexican farm workers and laborers and, you know, the women who are housekeepers at hotels all across the, this resort community. 
So, uh, you know, these folks, you know, they're left out of the culture here. It's a great irony, right? I mean, it's like they are the culture. Right. So these two artists started a, a mural project down in Coachella in the downtown uh, Pueblo Viejo uh, district, which is historic downtown. And it's a cool little place. It's clean and it's safe and it's kind of beautiful, brand new $4 million Veterans Memorial Park where you have great festivals and community events. And so around this community now, around this downtown, I mean, uh, artists have been coming in from uh, L.A. and from around uh, some other uh, Latin American countries, Central America and even South America, have come in and created murals. And, uh, you know, some people know that they're there, but they're not promoted. So one of the things that we did is we created a tour of the Coachella walls, and we've done events down there to bring people from the West Valley, you know, like Palm Springs and the Mid Valley, like uh, Palm Desert, to bring all the nine cities, the arts leaders, tourism leaders. We brought them down there for a mixer at the Date Farmers Studio. We did a walking tour of the Coachella walls. And we couldn't believe how many people told us they had never been to Coachella. They've lived in the desert their whole life and never been to Coachella. I don't even know how that's possible. But, you know, it's separation of this, you know, super uh, white and super Mexican cultures. And, you know, in some places like in education and certain areas of business, you know, they overlap. And, you know, in high culture, they never overlap, almost never overlap. And that's something we're trying to, to correct. Well, there's definitely separation just based on economic capabilities. Of course. I live in a, an affluent area, but there's a lot of migrant workers here, uh, Latin American migrant workers. And we only have one artist that I know of, Betty LaDuke. I don't know if you're familiar with her. She's pretty much internationally known. She's the one who's uh -huh. taken the time to go out in the fields and paint them picking strawberries and bringing their life to light through art so people can know that they're just not out there. This is part of uh, an integration process of showing art is part of the life that we lead that we don't see. Yeah, we have a lot of work to do. Uh, you know, and that's the great thing about art and the arts in general. I mean, whether it's performing or visual, that's the bridge. That's what brings people together. You know, it doesn't matter if you're on the left or if you're on the right, what do you think about this song or what do you think about this image? And, you know, that's a thing that can start a dialogue between two people that would never communicate. It's a great place for people to be able to express themselves and express their experiences. Uh, we had a play here earlier this year, or I'm sorry, earlier this season, as we referred to them, uh, the end of 17 with a New York playwright that came out here and did a uh, one-man play for the students out here. One of the local theaters, the CV, uh, CV Rep, the Coachella Valley Repertory Theater, has one youth outreach program that they produce every year, sending uh, this play out to the schools and also bringing uh, students into the theater. And this particular one was called The Bully, so you can imagine what that was about. You know, watching these kids listen to a story about bullying, and then after the performance have a Q&A or dialogue with the actor and it's amazing what kids will say and they start talking about their own experiences so you think about how art can affect somebody whether it's a play or a song something's going to affect you whatever it is something's going to get you and, and make an impact 
And, uh, you know, I think that's one of the things we have to create. And, uh, you know, when we're able to do that, not only with kids, but with different communities, you know, that's where you can actually start to make a difference. Well, I totally agree. And this is where the educational model has to change. I mean, countries like Finland have started adopting this, making culture a primary objective instead of a secondary objective and exposing young people to art to create that dialogue. And we're just in the infancy stages of actually informing our people and bringing people together. But it is, in fact, the case. And art has always been that bridge because... Anybody can be an appreciator. You don't have to own art. You can visit art. And uh, I think in most places, children are not exposed to that culturally. And their souls are probably starving for it because it is that place where we can all get together and just talk reasonably. And children can expose the real questions they want to ask and and get deeper into their own psyche and uh, the connection with their brothers and sisters. So... Yeah, I know how important it is. I mean, I grew up as a as an illustrator. My father was an illustrator and painter, and I cannot imagine not having that as part of my experience of, you know, even just going to the Natural History Museum in Los Angeles several times with my parents or going to MoMA or just being able to see things. On my way back from Thailand in uh, November, took a trip to LA, and my father took me for the first time to the Norton Simon Museum, which was spectacular. And I'd never been there before, and I grew up in Southern California. And uh, it was such a wonderful place for my father and I to quietly appreciate something together. And uh, I think it's a good bonding element for human beings to share and to have that independent experience. But then again, like you said, to ask the deeper questions, to, to probe life a little more, whether it's through painting or live performance or music. We really need to start embracing the gifts that we have to actually communicate with each other, which we really haven't engaged in yet. Yeah, I agree. It's amazing that, uh, you know, the the benefits of the arts are are certainly well documented. And yet we have to fight for money. You know, we're living in a uh, an anti-intellectual period right now. Oh, boy, is that correct? Questions and, you know, science is bad and the arts are elitist and, um, all of that stuff, and uh, so it becomes more challenging. And you know, the president's talking about eliminating the National Endowment of the Arts and the National Endowment of the Humanities, and, and um, you know, it's uh, kind of sad, but you know, it's a challenge, and it's a big part of why uh, California Desert Arts Council has formed, and is because we can't count on having an NEA necessarily, and uh, you know, we have to kind of do it on our own down here. Well, I think that's actually good. I think it's what needs to happen. That's why this dude is here, is to show us, get up and take it back. Do what you want. Create what you want. Start uh, taking on the uh, social responsibility and not expect that uh, a a dying system is going to be able to support human beings appropriately because, frankly, it is not, and it clearly does not. So this is opportunity as I see it, and people like yourself – and other people coming up in age, they're going to have to demand it. In that demand, we'll get what we want. But I think we're between the ebb and the flow, more in the ebb, of course, because I don't see a lot of flow. I feel we're pretty two-dimensional right now. <laughs> and uh, and that's fine. Yeah. You know, if it is a pendulum, that is the metaphor that we use. It's really going to be up to my children 
I mean, I can do what I can do and you can do what you can do, but it's going to require uh, our children to create what they want, but it's going to require, of course, people in your position to present that opportunity. So yeah, it's interesting times for sure. I mean, it always is, but good on you. Thank you for doing what you can in that way. <laughs> but I have high hopes for uh, our young people. I don't have any faith in anybody, but I do have hopes. They can do anything they want, of course, regardless of what kind of period of time we, we seem to be in. That's right. I agree with you. A lot of work to do. Yeah, of course. And there's always going to be a lot of work to do. You know, as a matter of fact, uh, I had uh, a friend, uh, Dr. Rick Kirshner, on a show, and he said something pretty profound. Uh, he said, stop trying to make things perfect. There is no end game. There is no final result to achieve. It's just always do, of course, the very best you can and get what you want out of life because <laughs> this is it, man. You know, I'm not, I'm not aware of any other opportunities of this nature and uh, neither is anybody else that I know of for sure. There's a lot of hearsay and speculation on things outside of the thing, but yeah, nobody knows anything about anything. So I do appreciate that you do here in other countries, things are happening. And I think like Thailand, who's one of these countries who lives uh, saving face, I think America is the same way. And as the culture in surrounding countries start coming up, we may be embarrassed into having to improve ourselves just based on the fact that we're just not keeping up with even just basic uh, reasonable standards of cultural assimilation. Yeah, I agree. I think that's the truth right now. We don't have to wait for that. I mean, I see that today. And uh, you're, you're right on the money there. Yeah. So what's really cool for me, more than anything, just because he's such a hot item right now, and I love this guy dearly, and I always have, but I didn't know he was going to wake up like a punch in the face and then punch everybody else in the face with the punch that he received, which is Jim Carrey, of course, who you... <laughs> interviewed and uh, uh, presented his work uh, in the desert, right? He had a, a first-time show there? Yeah, uh, it was a private exhibition. It was up and down in, a, in only a few days, and, and uh, Jim came into town, uh, uh, invited a lot of Hollywood and New York friends and some of his art friends, because uh, Jim is a collector, too. So he makes art, but he's also a collector of art, and he's got some really great pieces, actually, from some pop art to, uh, he's got a piece by uh, Alifar Eliasson, who's um, done a major installation in New York recently. It's uh, kind of iconic, and so I, I was kind of impressed with the things that he collects, but then when I saw his work, you know, it, it was so personal and so uh, excruciating in terms of uh, not only the execution of it, but, you know, his own psychology in making it. When I interviewed him, he was, um, uh, you know, we only spoke about art and his background. We didn't talk about a single film. I don't even think we mentioned acting even once. We just kind of got right into the art, which, you know, is how I like it. And, um, and he was really surprising to me in that he, you know, he grew up with a lot of depression, a lot of sadness. He comes from a you know, a family where there, there was just a, a lot of depression. He never felt good about himself. And he used humor because it was one thing he realized that he could make people laugh. And he kind of used that as an, ex, as an escape uh, and as a defense mechanism for his entire life. And he, he hid behind the humor so he didn't have to deal with his uh, real family sadness. But, you know, I think that when you really 
you know, dig into his personal life a little bit as I had a chance to and then look at the work that he's creating. You know, it, it's therapy for him and uh, it's exactly what expressionist work is supposed to do. Uh, you know, let it out, uh, big long sweeps of the paintbrush and big canvases, big expressionist gestures and, you know, it wasn't all abstract. I mean, it was abstracted you know, abstracted figures, and there was a lot of text in the work, and there was um, a lot of people from his life appeared in the work, um, not in a realistic way, but certainly representationally, and they're really thoughtful pieces. You know, I can't say I'm in love with the art. I mean, it's not necessarily my thing, but I really appreciate what he does, uh, putting his heart and soul into this work, and and kind of, you know, bearing it for all to see. It's uh, a big, uh, brave enterprise for him, and uh, I was surprised that he went more public with it. When he did the exhibition here, it was really just for his friends and a few collectors that the gallery wanted to invite. Uh, it was kind of an exclusive little thing. And, you know, then I didn't hear about it. About a year or so ago, I saw some stuff popping up on the Internet about him, and his art, and, and now here we are. He's uh, openly talking about being an artist now. So, yeah, it's kind of fun to watch. It's going to be interesting to see where he takes it. And he's a surprising guy, and I found him to be remarkably normal in his abnormalities, uh, which was refreshing that, um, you know, not that I, I, I'm glad that he has all of these issues in his life, but that he's able to talk about them pretty openly and express himself the way he does. Uh, it's got to be really liberating for him. Well, he does a lot of tweeting, and uh, he puts up an original illustration almost every day, a marker illustration that I collect every one. I save every one of them. Wow, wow. And uh, I get what he's doing. He has been at it. You know, he just hasn't been talking about it, but he's well-practiced, and he does it a lot. He's got a pretty good-sized studio, and it's where he feels best. It's where he feels most free. He's talked to me about some of the people that he invited into the studio. He generally likes to work alone, but he shared a story with me about when he invited uh, John Mayer to come in, and he was telling me he's painting, and John Mayer's there in the corner playing music. He was surreal. Wow. So, um... Yeah, can you imagine? No, that's the uh, coolest so, scene I can imagine is being a fly on the wall for that gig. So um, I really enjoyed Jim and his friend Noah, who uh, they, they came out here together. And uh, yeah, they're all really tall and I'm really short, so that was kind of weird. <laughs> um, you should have called, you really called me up so you could have your other little Jewish brother with you. <laughs> It was kind of ridiculous. Here I am, 5'7". These guys are all 6'4", 6'5". Oh, goodness. I didn't realize Jim was as tall as he was. He's so lanky. He looks like one of the characters he plays. You know, for all of the um, uh, gut-wrenching drama that goes on in his work, he's a super down-to-earth, very decent person, and uh, I really enjoyed uh, the, the brief time I got to spend with him. Because he carries so much cachet. I would love for him to go to schools with his art and encourage children to start exploring their feelings now and not wait too long. Uh, it seems like such a great outlet for children 
to uh, experience themselves in the world around them and try and articulate it in ways that are, you know, uh, unspeakable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're so right. It changed people's lives just because of his experience and his popularity. You know, I mean, he's still relevant today, and um, he's intergenerational in his appeal. And I think you're exactly right. He should be out there doing that, going to the schools, going to whatever he's got to do, go to where the kids are, go to where the kids really need them. He has massive appeal. He will always have massive appeal. I guess he just recently, maybe it wasn't recently, he delivered a commencement speech at a college and told them the truth. But he told them the truth in his own special way. And uh, while keeping it light, it was still poignant and glaring, glaring truth. I think he is doing that in his way. I mean, he's only one guy, but from an art perspective, has an opportunity, especially if he, he lives a lot longer, uh, to make some serious impact on humanity. Yeah, I, I think that people who have big audience, like an ex-president, folks who are, are making art on a regular basis, you know, it would be a great service to see them out in the community uh, talking to kids, talking to adults too. I mean, let's face it, I mean, that's why they have art therapy. It's a great way for people to, to really deal with things. And, you know, I have a friend here who runs a, a little nonprofit that's starting up right now. It's called Bird Brain. And, um, and my friend, he's, uh, you know, twice a victim of, of sexual assault and, uh, and was using dressmaking as a way to, uh, we're sewing first, but it, it led to dressmaking, uh, as a way to kind of work through her stuff. And, uh, not like you ever work your way through it, but, uh, you know, she kind of found something as, as maybe a portal to help people having to, to, to reacclimate themselves to the world after a traumatic experience. And so, and, and it's using, it's using the art. It's creative. It's making something. It's using your hands. It's crafting. So, you know, I'm really quite proud of her. She's my walking partner finds the week. And, uh, you know, so we talk about all of this stuff and how art and, and helps people heal and, and starts dialogues and creates bridges. And, uh, it's a powerful thing. And, and I'm glad that we're sitting here talking about this because the more people that hear it and share it, the more people will benefit from it. I totally agree. Necessity is the mother of invention. Perhaps some kind of a nonprofit organization that their specific duty is to make sure that people like this are out and about and exposed to the children. And there is uh, energy put around this so uh, people can see this as a viable option for having to deal with being a human being. I mean, it doesn't require any great talent. You just need the tools and be shown how to use the tools kid that was living here at my place for a couple of years, he heard a joke about Jackson Pollock, like, or Jackson Pollock painting, or, and uh, didn't get the reference. And, right. And I can assure you now he gets the reference. Right. Um, but, you know, that was kind of like a little, you know, open door to art right there. That was, as Obama would call it, a teaching moment. So here's a kid that, uh, you know, came from, uh, you know, not very... Um, privileged background, shall I say, and, and uh, came to, to live with me for a couple of years. You know, I've got an art collection in the house, and now he has kind of a different way of looking at the world. He, you know, he has a, a measure of cultural literacy just by osmosis. So, you know, when I listen to him talk now and listen to the way he contextualizes things, 
it's a bit more sophisticated than somebody who doesn't have uh, knowledge of music or knowledge of art or, or theater. Not like he has any depth of that knowledge. He doesn't. But with some exposure to you know people like Picasso or Warhol, we went to a museum once and he saw his first Warhol and I, I popped that at his head. Hmm. And, uh, and what a great moment, you know, what, just what a great moment to be there when somebody is seeing something iconic for the first time in person. I don't think we're doing good by our kids. The system's not right. You know, we're, we're trying to prepare kids for college. Not all kids go to college. You know, most, <laughs> I mean, college is getting more and more expensive and, and, uh, now there's a trend that college isn't worth it. You know, it's not, it's not worth it. No. Mind-boggling. And it doesn't leave a lot of options because there's not a lot of conversation around this. I had specific conversations with both my daughter and my son saying, go to college if there's something there that you want from it. If there's something that you need to extract that you can only get from that source, then yes, of course, that's what you should do. Make the investment of time and energy. But if there's something that you want to do or you don't even know what you want to do, I'd rather see them travel around the world and see how other people live for a little while before they decide on some vocation, just something that's going to earn them money to keep them part of the system, because that's not nourishing. And and we're not nourishing our children. You know, there's not much difference between, you know, pushing the cattle through and pushing our kids through it. Yeah, I mean, you know, when I was growing up in the 70s and early 80s, and I was thinking about, you know, what's going to happen, you know, when I'm done with high school it seems like there were more choices than there are today. I mean, vocational training is off the table now, and you don't hear about that anymore. <laughs> you know, you go to college, you go learn a trade. And, uh, you know, I remember, you know, growing up, you would hear in every commercial break on television, it was another trade, you know, tech school. And I think that we're so hell-bent on college prep that we're ignoring all the kids who aren't going to go to college. Right. College isn't for everybody. No. It wasn't know, for we, me. We, I didn't you, do it. You know, I mean, I did, but, you know, I think that there's things that I, I might have done differently. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I think that there are a lot of kids, including this, this kid that was here with me, that uh, would have benefited probably from having a few more options that they were exposed to before they, you know, left high school. Yeah. I, I think that if kids aren't going to the community college or college in general, then they're ending up in low-paid, low-school jobs in the community and they're going to struggle the rest of their lives. You know, we, we have to be encouraging trades as well as college because it's the only way. We have to have skilled workforces and, uh, you know, I, I just don't think that we're preparing the kids and showing them their choices early on. We're just too fixated on test scores and, and everything else is being lost. Here's a question nobody's asking. What do you want? Not what do you want to do for a living? What do you want with your burger? What do people want? Nobody's <laughs> asking that. And nothing you can answer in five seconds. It forces people to contemplate the question. It would force a child to sit with that and really think about what is it they want out of this finite thing that we get to do so we don't waste right. a lot of the time doing what we don't want to do in order to find out what we want to do, which seems like a backwards way to get to where we want to be. Yeah, I agree. You know, I had lunch with somebody today, an artist, in fact, who's visiting from El Salvador and doing a big installation at the Coachella Festival right now. And, 
we were talking about exactly that. And the opportunities here for young people and for connecting communities in a place like this where the weather is always good, the opportunities for people to come together around something creative, whether they're creating something as a community together or participating in some kind of experience that pops up in town, there's a way to connect people through experience. And there's a term we call in the business here, creative placemaking. And it's bringing together different parts of the community, such as government, such as your residents, the creative community, artists, and, uh, and different neighborhoods. And bringing together people who live right next to each other, might know each other, and really build a community around a common objective, which might be to create something special in town a legacy work of art. Maybe it's a mural or maybe it's, uh, you know, working together to fix up a park or, or whatever it is. Maybe it's a storytelling moment. Whatever you do, whichever discipline, whether it's music or a drum circle or whatever it takes to bring people together, the bonding over something creative feels good. And it, it creates something in a community that you can't get by just, projecting a movie or doing something that's one direction, you know, listening to a band. It, it has to be something that's interactive. And this idea of placemaking is something that we're promoting here in the desert. And um, and it does take some people a while to understand what it is, because it can be all kinds of things. It can be, like I said, a mural project or a storytelling event or some kind of a collaborative uh, endeavor. Uh, with any discipline, you know, it could just be, um, well, it, it could be anything. I mean, it could be a, a, a community meal, uh, where maybe artists do the plates and there, maybe there's, uh, some local musicians doing their thing and, and bringing people together with this great creative environment that's authentic, that's, you know, artists that they know and, and, uh, food that they like and people who are just like them and probably live around the corner and they've never met. And that's kind of what creative placemaking does. It connects these people and uh, these bridges, these different communities and different types of people and creates a common ground and some understanding. And it could be really powerful if it's done right. I mean, with Desert X, we had 16 site-specific art installations around the desert. And, uh, you know, it took some criticism that a lot of the artists were from out of the country or from out of state. So that's part of it, though. I mean, that's what makes it an international experience. But, you know, we did have locals in there, too. Philip K. Smith, who's probably the best-known local artist here, uh, had an installation there in Desert X. We also had uh, Jennifer Bolande who did an installation, and she spends half of her time up in Joshua Tree. And the date farmers, uh, Armando Lerma, you know, they did a, a mural. Uh, and then we had a couple of other New York-based artists, Rob Pruitt and Richard Prince. Uh, Rob Pruitt and Richard Prince, both blue-chip names, and... You know, they have homes here in the desert, and they participated in the event. So we can't call them local artists, but uh, at least we can call them part-time residents. The you know, turn of the century, uh, the Impressionist painters, you know, once the railroad tracks were laid down in the 1880s, you know, the railroads paid uh, the artists to, you know, ride the train and go and paint the landscapes in the West so they can use those images to get others to travel. And uh, so those paintings ended up in ads. So there was this influx of Impressionist painters 
both American and European, and some of the best, most important painters came and painted here in California, whether they were in Laguna Beach or Monterey Bay or here in the desert. Those are the three kind of primary art colonies back then. And uh, so there's always been this, this predisposition to art here, and it's such a beautiful place, and uh, the weather's always good, and so it made sense that the plein air artists would come out here and put their easels down and start painting the landscapes and the crazy light that we have out here. And uh, and that has not changed here over the last 125 years. It's just more and more interesting to watch how artists are using technology and new media to represent this place. It's an interesting trajectory when you go from the plein air artists from the turn of the century to, uh, to today, where you're seeing light installations and light in space, all kinds of innovation happening in, in terms of conceptual art and representation. Yeah, well, art is a great leveraging point for tourism, too, to attract people. Yeah, true. So it's very intelligent to leverage your human resources to attract other types of individuals that have that kind of an appreciation. Yeah, I mean, that's what we're trying to do is, is professionalizing. We have a lot of theaters that are run by actors and galleries that are run by artists. They're not necessarily gallery directors or owners. They're not necessarily theater directors, and they're trying to do both jobs. But we're trying to help provide some tools and training so that we can help these organizations uh, become sustainable, you know, looking for grant money, looking for audience development, marketing, all the things that you have to do in social media now. You know, it's all, a lot of this stuff is, is beyond the scope of uh, the individuals running these tiny theaters. And sometimes there's no staff, it's just one person, and it's largely volunteers. You know, if, if we can help professionalize it, then, you know, they can become sustainable, do bigger and better things. And when they do bigger and better things, then that's something that we can promote in the cultural tourism world. And if we can get tourists coming here specifically for culture, then we've accomplished something. Right now, they're, you know, they come for golf and they come for... <laughs> You know, the tennis tournament, you know, there's a film festival, which is culture. That's good. But, you know, we want people not just to come out for one event, but we want people to think of this place as a destination for art and culture. There's so much to see. You got you can't do it in less than a week. And right. it's the truth. You can't. And you put together packages for people. So it's almost like they have no choice. You're, you're going to have to book this for a week. And here's a schedule of events. And uh, and things that uh, are going to be presented to you as a package deal, so people will come for a couple of weeks and really absorb the desert experience. Yeah, exactly right. You know, the events are one thing, but there's also just the discovery and the scavenger hunt of driving around and seeing things like uh, Noah Purifoy's outdoor sculpture museum with his assemblage art up in Joshua Tree or seeing the Coachella Walls mural project, as I mentioned earlier, or going out to the Salton Sea and seeing the Salvation Mountain, or the Planner Pavilions done by Andrea Vitell at A to Z West. So there's all kinds of great experiences here that are kind of off-leash, you know, not institutionalized by you know, the museums and the galleries and the theaters and the performing arts centers. They're all great. There's plenty to do and see at these places, but when you come to the desert, you got to get in a car and see the land and get to the art installations that are all over this valley. They're spectacular, and they're so about place and people here. It's, uh, it's a great experience. 
And the drive is spectacular. I mean, just going between these things that I've just mentioned, just driving between them, it's like landing on Mars, you know, big wide open spaces, raw desert, you know, you see smoke trees and you see creosote bushes and uh, really all kinds of cactus, choya, jumping choya, and all kinds of critters and creatures running around. It's a funky little place. It's the, it's the Wild West. It's the outback, right. the wilderness. And, you, you know, in Palm Springs, it's all neat and manicured. But, you know, drive a few miles out of town and, and you're going to get a pretty authentic desert experience because Palm Springs and the this Coachella Valley, you know, when you're flying in, you really get to see how tiny this really is and how big the desert really is. And there's a lot to see out there. So where did little Stephen Biller start out? <laughs> I graduated college at Florida Atlantic University in Boca Raton. So that's not how you started. That's way down the road. Where did you start? <laughs> I started inside my mother. Like Okay, like good. All right. School. So we can come to that agreement. So you did start yeah. in your mom. And what location were you delivered at? So I was born in New York and uh, stayed there for, well, I guess I was 13 years old and moved to uh, Florida. Uh, I thought I was there to retire, but I actually had to continue living. But really loved Florida, loved Miami, loved the multicultural part of that, the great music uh, from all over Central America and South America and all the different tropical uh, countries that uh, send all their people to Miami. And it's just such a great mix of food and fashion and music and art. You know, that place just couldn't exist any other place. And, uh, you know, I came out here after um, about, I guess, you know, to, to about 10 years of uh, publishing in South Florida. I had an opportunity to come out to California and never looked back, really. I, I love California. and it's, it's just every day is another discovery. You know, I love it out here. Well, I'm from L.A., so I did the 35-year stint. Oh, boy. I did my time on the coast. My first four years here in California, I lived in Mission Viejo, which is not L.A. It's South Orange County. Not even Orange County, but South Orange County. Yeah, you were a Jew uh, in the curtain? That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was a little bizarre. But I was working in Irvine, and it was real close. I didn't have to get on the freeway to get to work for the first time in my life. That was wonderful. And... Um, <laughs> Uh, to live in Orange County and not have to get on the freeway to go to work, that's success. Right. That's, uh, you've done something right. Right. So um, so I stayed there for about four years and had an opportunity to move out here to Palm Springs and take over Palm Springs life for a dozen years and had a blast doing that. A lot of fun. Got to meet everybody in the world, it seems, and finally got tired of running and uh, now I'm kind of you know picking my projects and, and having a good time trying to make a difference in some small ways. Every little impact that you can make is a victory. Yeah, of course. I agree completely. So you managed to stay single yeah. this whole time? On and off. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I mean, you never threw down with the major commitment with anybody? Uh, I'm not really good at major commitment. Okay. You know what? The fact that you could actually say it and mean it and live it is fantastic. You've probably done the world a favor by not getting involved with anybody. I wish I was smart enough to have never, you know, imposed my will on another human being in that way. 
Well, I've been involved, and it doesn't go so well. So, uh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm what they call uh, not relationship material. Uh, well, you sound like uh, a very nice man, Stephen. I'm sure you're. <laughs> I'm sure you're fine. It just has to be the right find, I guess. <laughs> well, let me tell you something. Alone is the greatest thing that's ever happened to mankind. If only we would relish in the fact, you know, if we weren't so prone to feel lonely, which I never do. I love being alone. I was married almost 30 years. And alone oh is God. one of the greatest gifts that we've been given. We come in alone and we go out alone. And there's nothing wrong with being alone. You know, you need relationships. You want to be surrounded by people. But you don't, necess- you don't necessarily want to bring them home or wake up with them. So uh, I, I'm a proponent <laughs> of people figuring out how to be healthily by themselves. Yeah, I try to be by myself more. Uh, it's hard to do. really active in the community here. I'm out constantly and got some great friends out here. And what's part of what keeps me in this desert is uh, I, I thought of... Uh, not having these people around me is not not good. So um, yeah. uh, I'm here for the duration, and it's a great life. Got great friends, and I've had the relationship. Glad I'm not in that relationship today. And uh, and yeah, I, I think that uh, I, I agree with you. Just you, you know, when I was liberated from a relationship, it was really kind of sad and devastating at first. Because you know, you know most people would say, and but boy, you get used to that pretty quick. I, I really. Really, I hate to say it, but I started getting really selfish with my time. <laughs> if I can avoid going out some nights, you know, I, I really try not to. Yeah. And I'm happy to have a night of peace. Well, I think you and I are around the same age and uh, are thinking similarly. And uh, <laughs> I, too, occasionally go out and present myself to my public. And, and like your place where you live, I think we have a, kind of a tight community, very tribe-like which is what makes it so comfortable for us and why we appreciate uh, being part of the tribe. But it's always nice to say goodbye to the tribe and, and go home to your own teepee. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you've got to go home and watch the soccer game. I'm not sure you're doing that, but, you know, that's... Uh when I want you know tune out from everything, I find a good game. I don't care what it is. I don't care what language it's being broadcast. You know, if it's, uh, if it's a good game, I'm going to watch it. Yeah, well, I can do that with Seinfeld. I can just sit down and I can pull up any <laughs> Seinfeld and I can sit back and, and the rest of the world can actually disappear from view. So, yeah, you got soccer. I got Seinfeld. <laughs> Great. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that uh, you were willing to come on the show. We'd never met before. And again, you know, Alan Hicks had just happened to mention you and I... I did some preliminary, very brief. I don't really research people much, but I saw you were doing a lot of really cool work, and I thought it'd be interesting to bring you uh, onto the show and expose you to uh, the four people that listen to my broadcast, and uh, <laughs> and hopefully, uh, you know, the whole idea of my show is it's about sharing information, and that's what art is. Art is information delivered in a specific way, and it gives us something new and interesting to talk about. Yeah, well, this is great. I appreciate you having me on the show. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs> you, you seem like a great character. I hope I get to meet you in person sometime, maybe at a Shakespeare festival. And, uh, you know, I love talking about this stuff, so I appreciate the opportunity. And uh, I thank you. 
You're welcome, Stephen. I haven't been out to uh, the desert for quite a long time, but uh, I, I think there's a trip somewhere in there on my way back from a Thailand trip to cruise through the desert and go to the dry heat versus the absolute moist heat of my trips to Thailand. <laughs> well, I hope uh, you'll uh, look me up coming and uh, make sure that you have uh, an outstanding experience here. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. And, and I definitely will look you up when I'm in town. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you, Stephen. Have a great rest of your evening. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care, man. All right. Bye-bye. Well, that's the show. I hope you enjoyed it. It was great to have Stephen Biller. I am definitely going to take him up on his offer next time I'm in Southern California perhaps on the way back from my next trip to Thailand. I will stop in the desert and uh, get some of that dry heat he's talking about after all the wet heat I'm going to have uh, in November. Uh, I also want to thank my buddy Todd. Todd uh, provided me with the music today. He's uh, sitting in his house with his, uh, I don't know, 32-track home recording studio. And uh, he makes music that I really like. He's got that kind of Nirvana-esque thing going. He's got a lot of music. Um, and uh, he's going to slowly feed it to me. So I appreciate that. And I actually hope to be in the studio with him, perhaps uh, playing drums on some of his tracks. Uh, Citizen 44 with Mark Ahrensberg is a listener-supported presentation. Uh, if you feel so inclined to display your generosity to me, uh, you may do so by going to Aaronsburg.com and uh, click on the donate button. I appreciate your support, of course, as always. I appreciate your listenership, of course. There is no charge for what I do. What I do, I do for you. And uh, uh, just the fact that I know some of you are out there listening to the show is really enough to keep me doing it, frankly. So. Uh, again, thanks so much for listening. And uh, next week, we have Jeff Klotzel. Uh, he is a local singer-songwriter, guitar player, musician dude. Very nice uh, person I've played music for in the past. Uh, I look forward to uh, putting some of his music on the show, uh, his original music on the show, and uh, sharing that with you. Okay, until next week, all the best to you. This show is sponsored by Paris Green, a curated collection of incredible objects from around the world. Paris is always a good idea. 77 Oak Street, Ashland, Oregon. Visit them online at Facebook. If whatever you're doing is not working, there's only one way you can change that, and that's to change what you do, 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 change what you do. I am Citizen 44.